0: Chapter 9 The Calling Process The Calling Process, A Grounded Theory A Life Narrative Analysis of the Reverend Dr. Quincy Scott, Jr. This manuscript examines the life of Reverend Dr. Quincy Scott, Jr. and the experiences which developed his identity and calling as an Army Chaplain. This qualitative analysis is the product of four years of in-depth interviews, observations, and a review of the scholarly literature on life narrative research methods. The findings of this study seek to introduce a grounded theory on the process of identifying a life calling. Webster's Dictionary defines a calling as a story urged towards a particular way of life or career. Here, the narrative doesn't describe a life calling as some hyper-religious, distant, and unachievable mystical experience. The findings suggest that a life call fits a specific need in the world and utilizes a person's gifts, passion, and uniqueness. This study extends Dr. Scott's life narrative to illuminate the la- idea that everyone has a life calling. This life narrative examination adds to the scholarly work on the topic of a life calling and challenges the reader to reflect and re examine self concept, motivation and purpose. The introduction. I first met Chaplain Scott in 2003. I was visiting him at the recommendation of Dr. Patricia Ramsey, the Vice President of Academic Affairs at Shaw University. As I entered his office and began dialogue, it was almost impossible not to observe the artifacts, pictures, awards, and books which adorned the walls of his office. To the left of my feet was a dog bowl filled with fresh water and a small poodle dog that looked either dead or fake, but it threw me off because its chest would periodically expand as if it were breathing. Later, I would find out that Dr. Scott used this toy to throw people off their script, our socialized and learned responses of, in discourse, pull them from their script in order to find people's authentic selves. Through the brightly lit stained glass wonder, I could see shimmers of color reflecting off military awards as well as framed degrees from Vanderbilt University and Shaw University. Then my eyes stopped on a painting of The Last Supper. It was the traditional famous painting of the Anglo-Italian Jesus with the Italian-looking disciples. Oddly, in this rendition, there seemed to be a cut-out picture of Dr. Scott's head placed over one of the apostles' faces. I also noticed a newspaper cutout picture of a white preacher giving a sermon to an all-white church. In this depiction, Jesus was sitting in the front row of the audience falling asleep from boredom. If nothing else, this man had an isocratic, I'm sorry, an individual identity. This encounter left me wondering, what is his story? For this study, talking now about research and methods, I used a grounded theory research method. My study began with questions pertaining to black male identity formation. However, the data informed me as a researcher to move towards better understanding the narrative's connotation of his life's calling. This intriguing concept began to drive the remaining interviews, observations, and theoretical coding to produce a study that informs the reader on the phenomena of finding one's calling. The grounded theory methods were largely informed by the nine research procedures found in the 1990 article Grounded Theory Research Procedures, Canons, and Evaluative Criteria by Corbin and Strauss. These include data collection and analysis are interrelated processes, number two, Concepts are the basic unit of analysis. Three, categories must be developed and related. Four, sampling on theoretical grounds. Five, use of constant comparison analysis. Six, accounting for patterns and variations. Seven, process must be built into theory. Eight, Writing theoretical memos, and nine, developing and verifying hypotheses about categories. Data collection. Every mode of discovery develops its own standards and canons and procedures for achieving them. <coughs> what is important is that all these are made explicit. To improve the study's validity, reliability, and credibility, data was collected using commonly recognized standards for qualitative research. The methods of data collection in this study include participant observation, field notes, in-depth interviews, participant observations, and which were also recorded as field notes, then analyzed through open coding, code memos, theoretical coding, and themes. Limitations This study was conducted with a black male raised in the 1950s and the 1960s in American South. The realities of the narrator were the overt actions of racism discrimination, and segregation. The central truths of this study are relative to the lives of a larger group of readers who can see their own life processes through the words of the narrator. Research finds a grounded theory is generalizable insofar as it specifies conditions, the setting. Dr. Scott and I are sitting at his sunroom table overlooking the Crooked Creek Golf Course in Fuquay Varina, North Carolina. We are both drinking his famous tea, which consists of regular tea with half fruit juice, a type of fruity flux Arnold Palmer. There is a painted por- por- portrait of him with his father who passed away On the entryway of his staircase, the painting tells millions of stories. Behind his father's calm glance and soft smile, you see a middle-aged Dr. Scott peeping around from the right side of his father. The picture says, from whence I came. It says, even though I'm an adult, I'm still leaning or learning from and growing from the memory of my father. This peeping from behind that memory, that parcel together, gave me a mental idea of the world around me. What does it mean to be called? And I waited and waited and waited for the sky to open up. I was born in Norfolk, Virginia, 1944, to Josephine and Quincy Scott, Sr. I learned about my birth from my mother and father. I was born with a problem. Something was wrong with my heart. I had a pigeon chest, they would say, and I was expected not to be like other children. I was supposed to have had a disability. I was born at a Norfolk community hospital, the only black hospital in the area. Most black people were born in homes at this time. My siblings were born at home, but because of my illness, my more complicated issues, I was born in the hospital. My baby days were uneventful and not out of the ordinary. My earliest memories were of school in general first grade in particular. I recall that my father worked in the Navy shipyard. My grandmother kept me, my brother and my sister, while my mother worked. My mother would walk me a mile to my grandmother's home, and then she would catch the bus and go to work. My mother would pick me up at my grandmother's house in the afternoon. My brother and I would walk from my grandmother's house to preschool. We would walk by ourselves, but the communities were organized quite differently and we did not have to cross streets. We would return at noon and she would have a tub ready because I would have urinated on myself. My accidents, urinating, would happen because kids would bully me. I wasn't adept to be able to deal with people who weren't just like me in the sense of going to church and compliances with authority. The school I attended was all African American, and we were all poor, though I can never remember a time when there were people who were better off. I do remember others that were worse off, but not much. There were kids who did have a Spam sandwich or a peanut butter sandwich, but we didn't see it as poverty. It was normal and not seen as a disadvantage. In elementary school, I attended D.G. J. Cox. It was now a middle school. Because of the separations between blacks and whites, school would always be reorganized every year, every year due to overcrowding. We lived on a main street. And when one school got too crowded, the school board would require everyone on my side of the street to rotate to this particular school. We actually went to three elementary schools. Bullying stopped as one got older because teachers and parents got involved and penalties became too severe. The penalty was a spanking like the one I got (laughs) for talking talking back at inappropriate times the things you got punished for as i look back were so minor for example disagreeing we did not have the privilege of disagreeing with a teacher or any adult because their word was always the law the teacher was the law it was called sassin or talking back which involved consequences My black racial identity. I was aware of my race. The moment I can remember being a person of color, I was not the same color as the people's children that my father worked for. We didn't know a lot of white people, but when we saw white children, we knew that they were not equal. It was always like that was the way it was supposed to be it was an, um, as american as apple pie my father was a special had a special job that he had in order to earn extra money this special job he had was for the rockwell family who lived in the white part of norfolk it was far from our home on the other side of town going over there was like going out of town we didn't go there often My father drove his car. Sometimes, however, he would drive the white people's car. Cars were rare in my neighborhood, but my father owned a car. My mother was a secretary in a real estate office downtown, and she also had an extra job at a cleaner's two doors from where we lived. My dad was a funny man. He had a sense of humor that was out of this world. Much of his humor was very subtle. He was always saying things and doing things where you didn't even know you had been had until sometimes even years later. Then, even then, you had to laugh. Dad has been dead now for about 20 some years. And even now, I think of things Dad told me when I was growing up, and I believed them simply because he was my daddy, and Daddy always had the scoop. He always told you what was right, or at least so I believed. I can't remember when this picture was taken as he points to the oil painting of him and his father, but when i was in korea i asked the artist if he could do me this rendering from this picture i had in my wallet he could and he did the artists in korea are good and they would change you charge you so much for the number of people in a particular picture you know i'm always trying to get a deal so i agreed with them that what I was trying to do was a rendering that had one picture and two heads. So I shouldn't have to pay for two people because I was getting one man, my father's full body, with my head sticking around. Of course, I didn't mind paying for the picture. As it turns out, it's a picture that means a whole lot to me. To me, I learned a lot from my dad. You talk about caring for people, the man would go out of his way for anyone and would give you his last dime. I would say, "Daddy, could you carry this person to the airport or to the bus station and if there was a way that Daddy could carry that person all the way to their destination, he would do so. It's just the way Daddy was. I was in the school band, I played the trumpet, and the part. I'm a I, I part time. I was the drum major. I was attached, attracted to being up front or in charge. The drum major was special because they had feathers in their hat and they marched up front. I always remember. I got to ride to school with a neighbor instead of riding on the bus. It made me feel special. I always felt special, not because I was treated special, but because I was always doing things to make myself feel special. I liked to make money. I was always cutting grass, selling watermelon, or cleaning driveways. I was an entrepreneur, to say the least. I liked to look at money. The more I had, it gave me a sense of being wealthy. I was more interested in buying something big instead of a lot of small things. Mama would insist that I buy a shirt or socks that I thought to myself (laughs) that she should have bought. It was gratifying to make the purchase, though. My friends in school, the neighborhood kids and the church friends, enjoyed shooting marbles. You were always trying to win the other guy's marbles. Equated to money for me. The more marbles you had, the richer you were, but you were always risking the marbles that you already had. A lot of the lessons we learned as children took place during the marble games. Everybody got a chance to shoot the marbles out of the ring. We also played games one could play in the street, like baseball or football. And sometimes we would also play baseball and football in someone's backyard. Before I was exposed to choices, my identity formation came from events and experiences from the street and where one lived. My personality was more like my mother. She was more outgoing and more dramatic. Daddy was more compassionate and supportive. I formed my identity unintentionally by associations from these two. In school, it was the teacher who took me by pointing me in the right direction. I also gained direction from Sunday school. The church was a major driving force for my identity development. The youth choir was important as I look back. It was mostly things associated with religion. I didn't think I was going to be a preacher, but we spent most of our time in church. The church was a strong institution in my life at an early age. If we went to the beach, we went with the church. I learned piano from a gentleman at the church. At six years old, I was playing the piano. I took lessons from Mr. Seitz, was the piano teacher's name. He lived two miles from my house. My sister and I walked to each lesson. My sister was taking voice lessons while I was taking piano lessons. The lessons were 50 cents. That's what my mom would give us to pay the teacher. In school, I was learning how to write. Once a week, my father also went to Mr. Sight's house because he was in a special church choir. For whatever reason, I always went with him. I remember those visits well, because I happened to be there when they decided at one point in time to let me, me, little me, be in the adult choir. I was like their mascot. I don't know if I was a choir in the choir really or not, but they made me feel like I was in the choir. I felt special when I put on a suit and sat with the choir in the church. The first hymn I learned to play on the piano was Jesus is Tenderly Calling Today. I would play that in church. There was another song that they taught me to play, and Judy, my sister, learned to sing it. It was called My Taste. My brother would sing in some performances also. The church in the valley was our favorite song. I remember my part was the bass part. Oh, come, 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 come. While my sister and I would sing the melody. My brother and I would sing the melody. Everything centered around church. In the summer, we would go to Bible school for six to eight weeks. And we would learn scriptures and songs. It was six miles away. And six miles back, we would walk in a group and pick up other kids along the way. Every summer, me and my siblings would have wide-brimmed straw hats to protect us from the sun. College and Beyond When I finished at Shaw University, I decided that the Lord had called me into the ministry. But I was asking a lot of questions about that call. I heard a lot of people talk about being called into ministry. They would describe their call. I would say, shaking his head, No, I didn't see any signs. I ain't willing to play with the Lord. It was beginning to sound more like mama and not the Lord was doing the calling. Everybody called me except the Lord as far as I was concerned. What does it mean to be called? And I waited and waited for the sky to open up to see somebody walking through fire and not be burned or some miraculous happening. And I worried about that. Am I really supposed to be a minister? One day, a minister friend explained to me that the Lord doesn't deal with you the same way he dealt with the farmers back in the day when farmers had no education. When the Lord talked to those people, he talked to them in terms they knew and could understand. He talked to them, as an example, about the mustard seed. God talks to you in terms of your understanding, which is, I believe, said the preacher, to feel the need of something, believe that you can fulfill that need, and then prepare yourself to do it. The energy and the call around that was the re- was as real as anything I had ever felt. Then the calling is confirmed by a place for you to do it. Things open up. Doesn't God call a tree? God never calls a tree without a place for it to grow or be planted. So, leaving Shaw, I went to seminary to prepare myself to become a preacher-pastor. I started looking at the litany of black theology schools like Shaw University, Virginia Union, and Virginia Theological Seminary. They were the three primary black seminaries. Reverend John Fleming, a radical professor who graduated from Oberlin College School of Theology, the place where Reverend Gardner Taylor, a renowned black preacher, graduated from, suggested that I give it Oblin a try. So I applied and Reverend Fleming gave me a strong recommendation and they accepted me according to them due to his strong words and also due to my strong academic record for my final two years at Shaw as long as I was a prisoner. Oblin ended their theology program and merged with Vanderbilt As Oberlin students, staff, and faculty, they were all very close to one another, like family. Most of them were going to Vanderbilt with the merger. And so I said, I will go there as well. Easter weekend, five of us students got into a car. I will never forget it. Four white guys and me. It was a carload of us. We traveled through the towns of Tennessee, Kentucky, and all those rural places. And if a black person was with white people, it was a spectacle and people would just look. One person suggested that if they had some handcuffs on me, it would be just fine. They would carry me anywhere they wanted to take me as long as I was a prisoner. We would go into restaurants, and people actually didn't want to serve us. When they served us, my friends would notice things that I didn't notice, like my glass was different than everybody else's glass, or my plate was different. And they, my classmates, would reach over and change it. We were living in a very interesting time. Let me put it that this way. When we finally got to Vanderbilt, you're talking about a different world. There were the Oblins or the Oblinites over here. And there were the other students, Nashvillians from Vanderbilt over there. While I was at Vanderbilt and living through the unfolding process that happens in my life, one of my professors, who was the chief of Army Reserve chaplains, said to me, Would you be interested in joining the Army as a chaplain? And I thought, Army? I had never seen myself in the Army. In fact, I was the one with the Edge Hill Church community protesting the war and protesting anything that had to do with the military. I thought to myself, go in the Army. I thought, well, hey, this might be interesting. I didn't have any family responsibilities in terms of wife and children or anything like that. So I said, if I'm going to do anything else before pastoring and preaching at a church, I might as well do this first. Actually, what I thought I was going to do was finish seminary and go find a church. Most black senior pastors had been at their prospective churches at least 50 years and 60 years, and they died right there at the church. I just didn't want to do what other pastors were doing. I wanted to have done something earlier. I would be If I was going to be there for 50 years and die there, it occurred to me, maybe before I take the plunge, at least let me see or do something else. I'll go in the Army, I'll go there and I'll stay for three years, the minimum time one could serve, and then I would leave and do something else. I signed up to go into the Army and received a direct commission as a captain appointed by President John F. Kennedy. My first assignment was at Fort Benning, Georgia. The rest is history. I stayed in the Army for 29 years. I retired from the Army as a full colonel, having coveted assignments. I spent three years at the Pentagon in charge of all the chaplain officer trainings. I traveled to inspect training sites. It was a very coveted assignment because only a few chaplains got so close to the seat of power the headquarters of defense. Later, I got an assignment as a division chaplain. There were only seven divisions, so to become a division chaplain was another coveted assignment. I got the the second infantry division, which was in South Korea. It was a good experience with a lot of responsibility, a lot of people working for me, both officer and enlisted. I've got some creative genes in me. So one of the big things that I did while I was in Korea was to orchestrate a big tent revival. I had a commander who was fairly religious and I found a lot of support in him for this whole idea of having a tent revival. I invited my pastor, Reverend Robert Murray from First Baptist Church in Norfolk to come over and be the revivalist doing this revival. Rather than it just being a headquarters event, the whole division throughout Korea was bused in and we had about 4,000 troops gathered twice a day in prayer meetings, revival services, and lunches associated with this big revival experience. It turned out well. That was Korea. When I left Korea, I had an assignment at Fort Meade, Maryland, and retired from there as the post chaplain. I'm sort of smiling as I'm talking because there weren't many black post chaplains. One of the things that I have learned in my years in the military is that in order to be a pastor, one does not have to be the smartest person In the congregation, nor does one have to impress the congregation that he or she is the brightest person in the room. What I did as a military leader and what I would urge others leaders to do is to lean upon the gifts and the talents that exist among the gathered community. What are you working with and how do you utilize their talents? I want people around me who are smarter than I am. I'm not intimidated by people who are smarter than I am. Many leaders in colleges and other institutions don't even want you to have the slightest idea that you might be smarter than they are. If you emerge as that kind of person or that kind of leader, then you are very quickly squashed back, squashed down, squashed into your place. Therefore, my advice to leaders and administrators is first of all to know what it is to operate with some kind of integrity in the position that you find yourself. Not many folk do that really well. One of the reasons that we don't do that is that in the military and in other organizations, black organizations in particular, we get hung up on titles. You know, we like to be Reverend so-and-so. We're doctor so-and-so. We've got all kinds of titles, Colonel so-and-so. I have functioned for the most part of my life in an environment where nobody is impressed with titles. We respect titles. We respect positions, but we aren't very much impressed by the fact that one has a seminary degree. When I joined the Army, My mama used to ask, do they know, honey, that you have a master's degree? Well, I said, mama, you have to have a master's degree in order to be a chaplain. That was one of the requirements. So everybody, all chaplains, had a master's degree. When I finally got my doctorate, my mom thought that was the greatest thing in the world. And she would say, honey, do they know you have your doctorate? Well, a doctorate in the military, most of those guys and gals had such degrees. Some were even medical doctors who had changed their career and had been called into the ministry. Among chaplains, there were even engineers. There were doctors, there were scientists who had become chaplains. I resolved that my path to fame could not be housed in credentials, it had to be housed in performance. So that's what I linked on to, performance and execution. I was in a situation not long ago where the president was the president and he spent more time looking for photo ops and had no idea what was happening on the ground floor. I want to know what's happening on the ground floor and how I look or who knows what I'm doing is a byproduct at best. The process of building grounded theory. The process of building grounded theory utilized in this study was adopted from the work of Corbin and Strauss. The following figures displays the process I used in building grounded theory. And this figure shows writing up to theory building, modified research questions, focus coding and categorizing, initial coding and memo writing. Data collection, data collections, recruitment and sampling, research questions. The research question progression. The initial question focused on the phenomena of identity formation at historically black colleges and universities. Dr. Scott was an ideal study sample because he served as an insider on HBCU's through his experience as a student, faculty, and administrator. The initial research question was, how, if at all, did your experience at an HBCU impact your identity development? As the data collection progressed, I was intrigued by Dr. Scott's description of how he found his calling in, in life. It was as if, He had been thinking long and hard about the mental processes he went through to identify and pursue his life's calling. Years of thoughtful contemplation and insight were packed into a few lines of his interview transcript. Transcribing the interview and coding it for themes helped me to develop a new research question the final research question became what are the thinking processes related to a person finding and living out their calling? I felt like a miner digging in dirt, looking for gold and finding instead a treasure chest full of gems. In Dr. Scott's description of finding his calling, He articulated a practical way to help people reflect deeply on their lives through process thinking. I felt these constructs should be further analyzed and communicated through this research. From this process of digging for information, I began to build a grounded theory inspired by the process thinking of the narrator. This bulging, grounded theory called the calling process may help students who struggle finding their life's purpose. I thought of my own blank face looking into a mirror at age 18, wondering what I was doing in college, nonetheless a black college. I also saw the eyes of the freshman and sophomore students I have taught at Shaw University and the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, who donned this same blank stare when asked about their purpose in life. It was important to me to look at the data and connect its usefulness in a real way to my own life experiences. Charmaz writes, we construct our grounded theories through our past and present involvements and interactions with people, perspectives, and research practices, the calling process—a grounded theory—it was during the coding process, as I said in the qualitative research, qualitative research lab in North Carolina, in Chapel Hill that the words from the interview jumped off the page, I realized the more impactful focus for this life narrative analysis was encapsulated in a few sentences from my second in-depth interview with Dr. Scott when he said to feel the need of something, to believe that you can fulfill that need, and then preparing yourself to do it, and the energy and the call around that was as real as anything I have ever felt. Then the calling is confirmed by a place for you to do it. Things opened up, Chaplain Scott said. In these words, I saw a testable thought process of identifying your calling. I deconstructed this statement and used Atlas software to organize all the transcripts and then performed open coding, memo writing, and analysis for themes. I realized the interviews with Dr. Scott were articulated as a whole in phases, either consciously or subconsciously. Dr. Scott was describing these six phases in his life and God's confirmation of his calling. The process is depicted in the following figure. The figure that I'm referencing is one that talks about the the need, the feel, to feel the need of something. Two, believe that you can fulfill that need. Three, prepare yourself. Four, it it is as real as anything you've ever felt. And five, it is confirmed by a place for you to do it. And also six, things open up. These two sentences, when unpacked, become a complex yet very simple six-phase thinking process. The process begins phase one. Again, feel the need. It means introspection and reflection of where a person feels there's need, lack, or burden in the world. Related to the first phase is the second phase. Believe in yourself. This means that you have a gift and you have a talent that equips you to meet the need that you identified in phase one. And then phase three, prepare yourself. This means to study your craft and improve your gift by training, experience, apprenticeships, and both formal and informal education. Which brings us to number four, phase four, test assumptions. This is the energy. Is is the energy real? Listen to your heart. Listen to the energy you exude when doing the work or preparing to do the work. You may ask yourself, is this what I was born to do? Evaluate your life and examine it if external pressures like money, recognition, duty, or other expectations are draining your energy? Does the call make you feel alive? And then phase five, confirmation. This means that there's a space that exists or can be created to allow you to perform your calling and begin to meet the need identified in phase one. And then lastly, phase six, opportunity. This means that you are growing where you have been planted and your work is adding and multiplying rather than subtracting and dividing. This entire thinking process is depicted in another figure, uh, figure three, which shows uh, the six phases of the calling uh, process uh, that I have just mentioned member-checking and constant comparison. Upon the conclusion of my analysis, the research was then member-checked with the narrative and research colleagues for clarity and understanding. Additionally, findings were confirmed with data and relevant sources. Corbin and Strauss puts it this way, Making comparisons assists the researcher in guarding against bias, for he or she is then challenging concepts with fresh data. It was important for me to better understand the narrator's self-identified process of making his calling with actual events that arose in the data and ask additional clarifying questions to better understand the phenomena by breaking the concept down into into phases. I compare the six phases process uh, with other confirming data that I had received from the narrator. And so, table one, which is the constant comparison of uh, the calling process sort of congeals what we've been talking about in this chapter. Phase one, again, Dr. Scott describes his felt need as a call to Christian ministry. Phase two, Believe in Yourself, Dr. Scott's self-reflection on his childhood revealed a host of of, of teachers and church members and people in the community who uh, helped support him in terms of his belief in himself. This data in our first interview when the narrator said the word special five times when describing his identity formation uh, process in school. Dr. Scott said the drum major was special because they had feathers. I also remember I got a ride from a neighbor instead of riding the bus. It made me feel special. And so we're talking about ways that we believe in ourselves. Uh, Phase three, after feel the need, believe in yourself, uh, would be prepare yourself. Dr. Scott prepared himself through collegiate, seminary, and doctoral study in theology, in addition to field experience and family examples as found in the uh, interviews and the data. The narrator was also prepared as a graduate student, uh, stating, "Leaving Shaw, I went to seminary to prepare myself to become a, a, a pastor." Then, of course, there's phase four: assumptions. Uh, is the energy is the energy real? In interview three, Dr. Scott allows us to peek into his mental process of testing his assumptions about the Army. He states, I never saw myself in the Army. In fact, I was against everything the Army stood for. I thought, hey, later on, this might be something interesting to look into. So I said, I'm going to do anything. If I'm going to do anything else, I might as well do this first. That's phase four, assumptions. Phase five, confirmation. Uh, confirmation, again, as we said earlier, means an opportunity to prov- uh, provide provided or create it for a person to follow their call in life. In interview three, Dr. Scott recalls, while I was at Vanderbilt living Uh, through this unfolding process that happens in my life, I came upon a professor who was the chief of chaplains uh, in the Army Reserves, and he asked me uh, if I would be interested in uh, being an Army chaplain. Uh, Additional data was found in the book by Chaplain Scott, uh, The Battle Is Not Mine, The Life of a Black Army Chaplain in the 1960s, and Seventies, where he writes, when I joined the United States Army in 1968, the commander said, this is your parish. When these words were spoken, the reference is usually to a battalion of troops or to a family-type congregation that resembles most civilian churches. In either instance, there are no dean or steward boards or trustees or parish committees and no bus ministry. I was the chaplain and I was in charge of what took place in that particular setting. That was confirmation. And then finally in chapter six, opportunity. Opportunity means success as you begin your work in increase it, it I'm sorry opportunity means success and as you begin your work it increases and you're able to serve more people and at a greater uh depth of service Dr. Scott states I retired from the army as a full colonel after having some very coveted assignments I spent three years at the Pentagon in charge of chaplain officer training. I was a post-chaplain at Fort Meade, and I worked very close uh, to the uh, headquarters of the United States uh, Defense Department. I got an assignment as a division chaplain, and so all of these were opportunities that were garnered because of the uh, confirmation, which which were, were tested. Uh, for which he had prepared himself and for which he believed in himself and for which he, through all of these things, had been indeed called.